Well, good morning. My name is Jeff, and I am one of the pastors here at EV Free, and uh, we are continuing our series on giving, as uh, has been stated, a Christmas series where we're taking a look at uh, several of the stories of the coming of Jesus and his birth, and uh, this morning we're covering this passage in Matthew, and it's loaded with tradition, tradition that typically shows up on your fireplace mantle. You end up with a nativity scene there, and you've got the baby Jesus, Joseph and Mary. You've got some camels and some sheep and, and uh, shepherds, and then you've got wise men. And, and many of you know by now that that probably isn't accurate, that you've got the wise men there at the same time at the nativity. Because as we just saw, it says they came to him and they were in a house, not in a manger. So there's this estimate estimate that they came much later. And we're not going to go into all the details to try to answer every question. In fact, if we do well this morning, we'll have raised more questions. And you'll scratch your head at some of these myths, some of these legends, all the things that stack up. So like the wise men, there's a lot of stories that go with them. And many of them you know because over the years, like how many wise men are there? We always say three, right? And it's, that typically comes from the old ancient hymn, um, We Three Kings of Orient Are, uh, smoking on a rubber cigar. It was loaded and it exploded. So you learn this stuff from a child and you know all about this passage already. So there's very little that we can bring to bear. The problem is, is we know so much more about this passage that actually isn't in the passage. So we pick up a lot of uh, tradition along the way that helps flesh out what we think here, but that's because there's some pretty big gaps. So right off the bat, the, the wise men, wh- who are the wise men? And they come from the east. So as we put in perspective, that's north. So east is going to be that way. When I refer to they come from the east, out east, what we have from Jerusalem and Israel, east is going into Persia into Babylon in the area of of ancient Babylon. And so these wise men are coming from that direction. And the idea that the the literally Greek word here is magi, and it's the term for magician, and what that scares us that, oh, wait a minute, these are magicians and they're looking at the stars, so are they astrologers? This whole thing's getting kind of creepy. And it's actually that when you look at it this way, you want to understand that the kings of old, they would surround themselves, and hopefully kings today too, would surround themselves with the wisest in the kingdom for their advisors, the smartest individuals, the individuals who would guide well. So these are learned men. These are men that study the stars. They are ancient astronomers. They know the night sky. And in fact, if you know anything about astronomy, most of the stars in our night sky have Arabic names and Arabic names and Persian names that come from this original group of astronomers. They knew more about the night sky than anyone else for a long, long time. And so to have astronomers come from the East isn't a surprise. To have wise men come from the East isn't a surprise. That that is actually pretty, pretty standard. That might be where you would expect them to come from. The thing that they do, though, is if we look at this passage, is they, they, something else happens here. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, a wise man from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So the star rises, for whatever that is, we're going to talk about the stars in a second, but the star rises, and from that star, 
it guides them to Israel, to Jerusalem, and they show up in Jerusalem to find the king of the Jews. Now, whatever you know about the stars, it's not likely that it would tell them all of that detail. It might guide them. If there's a light and it's leading your way, you follow the light, it might get you there. But where do they get this idea that it's going to talk about the king of the Jews, that he's being born? That this, they've got to have other information beyond that, or they don't know. They, they, there's no way they come, they might show up and go, we followed the star, we're here in Jerusalem, we have no idea why. Instead, they stop and say, we followed the star, we're here to find the king of the Jews who's been born. That part of it is one of those things where you stop and go, well, somebody had to be talking about that. Somebody off to the east had to have been having this conversation about it. Well, here's a fascinating thing. If, if we look at it, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 9. And there's a fascinating little event. It's kind of not little. It's a big event in Daniel's life. But Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were taken captive from Israel and taken to Babylon. He's there. He rises to where he's second in power. And we're going to join up with him in chapter 9. In fact, in verse 19, you have the last part of one of Daniel's prayers. And he is praying literally for forgiveness. O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So he's praying for, for forgiveness. And while I was speaking, verse 20, and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So just before we get into the vision, you just have to understand this, that Daniel is praying, he's praying fervently, and God in heaven hears him and hears the plea, and he is so satisfied and loves Daniel so much, he takes Gabriel, the archangel, from whatever he's doing and sends him over to Daniel to give this prophecy that we're about to hear. And at that moment, verse 24, this is what Gabriel says. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Now, if you're getting nervous about the 70 weeks of Daniel and the seven weeks and the 69 weeks and how it all adds up, talk to Darren. Darren will answer all of that. Just grab him later, ask him out to lunch. He'll explain that whole thing. But bottom line is, it's literally a timeline that is set in motion from the time that the king decrees to send out to rebuild Jerusalem, the clock starts. And all kinds of people have studied this, and the timing from the decree to the time that Jesus is born is actually the, the, almost the exact same amount of time. This comes from this prophecy of God in heaven sending down an angel to Daniel while he's praying for forgiveness. He tells of an anointed one, a prince, who's going to come from that timeline. Literally, 
it's very possible that the wise men in Babylon heard from the, the, their predecessors from Daniel that this angel from God came and gave this prophecy. And they come watching the skies and going, this is the time. They follow the star and they show up and we go, we know the prince is coming because we, we've heard this. It's been handed down from others. And you might think, well, it's a little bit of a stretch to think that that's connected. Well, let me do one more thing. Turn to Daniel 2, just a few chapters ahead. And we have this, this description of who Daniel is in Babylon. In verse 48 of Daniel 2, Daniel is risen up to be second in power, and it says, Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Then literally all the wise men that are over there in Babylon, the ruler and the prefect, the one that's over all the wise men is Daniel himself who receives this prophecy of a coming prince. So it's not actually a surprise that wise men from the east would come knowing about the birth of a prince and the anointed one in Jerusalem. But that's all the farther they go as they get to Jerusalem. But here's the thing. A couple days ago, um, my, my daughter from Colorado came for kind of, they're not going to be here for Christmas, so they, they came to see us, and they brought their family, and one of their um, sons is a, a young man by the name of Barrett. He's about six years old. They all came to our house, and we have a swimming pool, and they saw the swimming pool. They're from Colorado in the Rockies, and there's not a lot of swimming weather in Colorado in the Rockies. I'm not even sure they have a pool in Colorado, but they came, and they looked at it, and they wanted to go in right away. Well, it's not a heated pool. Like if you guys have a pool, it's not heated. And so we look at it and then we're like, yeah, we're not going in. And Barrett wants to go in. He wants to go swimming. So we don't want to deny the the poor child. So we grab the floaties and I'm in the shed getting the floaties for each of the kids to be able to ride around on. And I, I grab one that I think is perfect for Barrett, and it's a little black puffin, and I hand it to him, one of the inflatable ones, and he grabs it, but he looks at it, and he says, no, Grandpa, I want that one back there, and it was a white swan. Well, the problem with a white swan is, is it has this little plastic thing with two little holes for legs, so it's like a seat. All the others, you can kind of put your whole body in, and I'm thinking if he sits in there, it's going to hold him up higher, he's going to be taller, he's going to be top heavy, he's going to flip over, and he's going to go into the pool, and bad things will happen, and it's going to be really cold. So I say, well, Barrett, you don't want that one because that one's not going to work, and it's going to knock you over, and you're going to go upside down in the pool. Barrett grabs the white swan and he's walking away from me and he says, you don't know that. (laughs) And I'm thinking, well, find it. You go find out for yourself. And I sent him on the way. Barrett and I were just reliving that story this morning. And he goes, and Papa, I didn't go over. I was right and you were wrong. (laughs) He was right. I didn't know that. And this is the point of the whole thing. We can make conjecture about where these wise men came from, why they knew what they knew, but we don't know that. We don't know that. We can put these pieces together and say, this is a likely possibility, but we don't know that. 
So we're going to do that with a couple of things and look at it, but we're going to talk about what we, do, what we know and what we don't know. In this case, we don't know for sure that that's exactly how they heard. We have Daniel getting word from Gabriel the archangel. How, why couldn't they have gotten Gabriel coming to him? We don't know that. We don't know why. But as it comes, so now they show up in Jerusalem, and this whole thing about the star, they give this line. So we're back in Matthew, and, and uh, that, that part comes in, and it says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw its, his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So another thing about tradition, what is the star? How did they follow this star? So there's all kinds of conjecture and tradition about what the star is. There's some people that believe it was a comet, and there's no real comets on record that would have happened at the right time. But somebody else says it's a supernova, and it's recorded in some of the Chinese literature that they had seen a supernova around this time. And it's like, all right, even there, if it's a comet or a supernova, how does that tell you where to go? And a comet, there's a comet, by the way, right now. You can Google it later, but it's called the Christmas comet. Tonight's a great night to go out and see it. It's not very bright, and it doesn't actually, it's above everything. It's not above Jerusalem. It's not above, it's, it's above everything. That these kind of things don't actually guide you somewhere. So how do you get to the point that, that whether it's a, a conjunction of planets, or whether it's a retrograde motion, or whether it's, we just don't know. Except there's one version that I'm going to give you just for the fun of it that is a fascinating part that lines up with Jesus' birth. And this is the way it goes. So I've got a setup here for just a second. But basically, I'm going to ask you to kind of remember back to your days in school and how you learned about the basics of astronomy. So we're going to start with, uh, with the sun. So we've got the sun. And we'll put this up front. Don't worry if most of you can't see it. It's not all as bright as the real one. But there we've got the sun. And so the whole universe, or, or the, not the universe, the whole um, solar system, the gal- our particular set of planets, circle around that. So what happens at this particular time is you've got to imagine that this sun, this star, is in a field of other stars. There's all kinds of suns that are out there. And these guys that are studying astronomy, they're looking at it. They know all the stars. And stars, by definition, they're, they're sitting out there. They're just moving in this solid motion across the sky. They're not shifting and moving all over. Now, to be fair, stars are moving, but they're so far away that the distance is very difficult to tell in your lifetime. You're not going to look out at a star and come out tomorrow night and see it in a different place. In fact, you're not going to come out next year and see it in a different place. It's going to be in the exact same places of the sky throughout your lifetime every single time you go out. Now, the sky's drifting along as it goes, and it takes a whole year for the star to move across the night sky. So imagine now that in this set of stars, we have constellations, the, the shapes like Big Dipper and things like that. Well, there is one that's known as Leo the lion. And this lion is in the night sky. And it's one of the ones that actually looks more like what it says it is. There's some, and it's like the Big Dipper traditionally is known as the Big Bear or some major. And you look at it and it looks like a Big Dipper. It doesn't look like a bear. And it's like, who did this? These guys must have been drunk out in the... Anyway, they, they weren't obviously the right wise men. Anyway, here Here's the story. This lion is up there, and the lion has in it, it looks like a lion that's, that's crouching down, and right where its chest would be, where its heart is, is a star. And the star right in the heart of the lion 
is called Regulus. And Regulus means regal. It's, it's the heart of a king. That's the star that's in the lion. And do you know of a lion that shows up in Scripture? Anybody? The Lion of Judah, right? So we have the Lion of Judah in the sky. So the wise men are going, all right, the representation of Judah. We know this prince is going to be born in Judah. That's what the prophecy says. Here's Judah, and there's this star that is the Regulus, the heart of the king. And then along comes Jupiter, which is a planet. A planet, it looks like a star, but it goes all over the place. It doesn't follow the pattern of the stars because it's not a star. It literally moves around the sun, while meanwhile these stars are going like that. This one's going around. Remember that? The whole thing, planets going around the sun? That's going on, and it's going around. And so, but Jupiter, the Roman name for Jupiter is, is part of, it is known as the king of all the gods. So if you don't see these pieces coming together, you have the Lion of Judah with the heart of the king, and right about this time, this planet, Jupiter, king of the gods, starts to do a really strange motion. It has what's known as a retrograde motion. And the retrograde motion, to, to understand that and explain it, I'm going to have to show the motions a little bit. So we're going to do the earth as well. So we've got Jupiter here, and then we've got the earth. This, um, this is from our perspective. So what happens is the Jupiter is out here a long ways, probably all the way to the back wall. And then you've got earth right here. And, and um, as you can see, Darren likes to stay warm. So he's going to stay closer to the sun. And he's going to go around the sun like this. Jupiter is so far out that it takes longer for it to move. Its year is not 365 days. And I don't remember exactly how long, but it's a much longer year. Where it takes us a year to go around, it takes, it's a really, really, really long year for Jupiter to go all the way around. But here's the thing. As it's going, the earth then moves past Jupiter this way. And what that means is Darren, from his perspective, it's going to look like Jupiter is moving that way. Make sense? So Jupiter is moving across the night sky in this direction as we go this direction. But once we come back over here, now it looks like we're going this way and then it starts going the other way. So if we're, if, you remember that? So it looks like it's going that way. This is like when you're driving down a freeway and you pass a car. You, it looks like the car's going backwards. But it's actually going, I'm going to assume 55, unless you drive much, much faster, then it might be going faster. But the idea is, is that we get this change in motion. Now, right about now, I've lost you, just like your physics teacher did in high school. But here's the point. Jupiter then, from the lion, with the heart of, with the, heart of, of the lion, is Regulus, the regal heart, the, the, the heart of the king. And then you have Jupiter, who is the king of all the gods. And it comes in and it does this backward-forth motion because of the way the earth is. At that particular time, Jupiter is placed right at Regulus. And if this is the heart, Jupiter comes by and circles Regulus three times in retrograde motion. And it's one of the rare events. And at the same time, Venus, another planet, comes in, has a conjunction with it, gets really close, so it becomes brighter than any star in the night sky because Venus and Jupiter are together at that moment, circling the heart of the lion at that point. Pretty fascinating, but in the famous words of Barrett, my grandson, you don't know that. <laughs> we don't know. 
We don't know exactly what was happening. There's some spectacular things going on with the night sky. But even if it got them to Jerusalem, it doesn't carry us all the way to Bethlehem because it's, they stop and say, they show up in Jerusalem, hey, where is he? And it's like, well, no, you'd have to look at the prophecies to see that. But then the star comes back and guides them right there. So clearly, even what we just illustrated isn't enough to get us fully there. Something more special is happening at that moment. But let's get back to the text for for just a second. As we look at it, when Herod the king heard this, and again, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. Now, the fascinating thing about this is he, he brings in his wise men, the chief priests, and he brings in the scribes, and he has them come in and say, hey, what, what are they talking about? Now, just so you know, Herod is murderous. He's, he's a really bad guy. He's actually a pretty intelligent king himself. He did built a lot of things. He managed a really difficult territory, but he was really, really defensive of his own kingdom. He would literally kill his own family. He killed three of his wives. He killed two of his sons. He killed his father-in-law, and those were the people close to him that he loved. You can think about other people that he killed as well. And we have this story that he went on to kill babies two years and younger. So he's a treacherous man who's protecting his kingdom at all costs, and he is king of the Jews. And coming out of the east from Persia come these guys, and they come up to the king, this treacherous guy who's king of the Jews, and they say, hey, we're here to see the king of the Jews that's just been born. It's actually a bad idea. It's a bad idea to go to a murderous king and say, not you, the other king of the Jews. He's going to do whatever he can to end the life of that whatever the other king of the Jews is. So this is happening. But what's fascinating is they come up and they give this prophecy out of Micah 2. So they come back and assembling all the chief priests in verse 4 and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared and sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. This is one of the saddest moments of the whole story. That Herod has wise men coming and telling them about all the things that are happening in the scope of the universe. And then at the same time, the wise men show up and the, the priests come in and they give the prophecy that says of the coming prince. So all of this is aligning. And Herod says, yeah, go to Bethlehem then. My priests say it's in Bethlehem. Herod doesn't go. This is a moment in time where the God of the universe has just sent down his own son and he's six miles away. Jerusalem and Bethlehem, Bethlehem is just six miles south of Jerusalem. Six miles away and Herod doesn't go. In fact, it doesn't show that the chief priests went. It doesn't show that the scribes went. That in the middle of this moment, the most spectacular moment in history, these individuals just totally miss it. They miss the entire moment. Now, it's a normal thing that we miss things. Uh, I, I love the story of things that happen right in front of us where we, we don't even realize there's something of tremendous value right there. The story of the Stuart Little. You guys know the story of Stuart Little, E.B. White. 
um, movie book, but it's, a, it's about a mouse who was living in an orphanage and a family comes in and they've come to adopt a child and, and they feel really sorry for this little mouse because nobody, for whatever reason, is adopting the mouse. So this family decides to adopt the mouse and they take Stuart home and Stuart becomes part of their family. And they're so excited that Stuart's a part of their family that they want to take a family picture. So they're standing in their living room next to the, the, um, the mantle and as they're standing there, they're all there with their picture and they're holding up Stuart, this little mouse. And we don't want to get too lost in the whole plot line and everything that happens. But as you look at the picture, it, it's, it's a scene that went by like that for most of us. We don't even notice. But several years ago, an Hungarian art historian is watching Stuart Little with his daughter. He's sitting on a couch at home in Hungary. And they're watching this scene as the family is sitting there having their picture taken. And he notices on the wall back behind the family is a picture of a woman who looks like she's sleeping and there's a black vase in the picture. And it's appropriately titled, Sleeping Lady with Black Vase. He's sitting there with his daughter and almost falling asleep until he notices this picture and he goes, that's Sleeping Lady with Black Vase. And the daughter's like, what does that mean? That's been missing since 1928. This picture's been gone, disappeared from the face of the earth since 1928. No one would have noticed except a Hungarian art historian. He sees it in the movie. He contacts Hollywood and tracks it down to an assistant set designer who is looking for stuff to build up the set to make it look like home. She's in an antique shop in Pasadena and finds this painting in Pasadena, takes it and puts it on the wall. And after the movie's all done, she takes it home and hangs it in her living room. He looks at it, and this thing goes on to auction for nearly $300,000. This thing of value, and you didn't appreciate it. Tell me, when you saw Stuart Little, did you get excited? (laughs) This is what happens if we don't know the value of something, we let it go. Things pass by us all the time that we don't even know what it's worth. The problem is, is that sometimes we do that with Jesus. Sometimes we come to this Christmas season and it just doesn't seem to be just, it's one more. I've done a few of these. I've had Christmas before. And the pastor's going to get up and he's going to talk about the wise men and the star and then the baby Jesus. And the value of baby Jesus doesn't appear to be so great. Um, Some of you may know John Colomb. He's on staff here. John Colomb has a notorious habit. When he's in somebody's house and they have a nativity scene and there's a baby Jesus there, he reaches in and he takes the baby Jesus. Now, recently, somebody's house, and they had a bunch of nativity scenes. They had a collection of nativity scenes, and John just kept stuffing all the baby Jesuses into his pocket. There's a man who knows the value of Jesus. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Herod doesn't get it. The wise men don't get it. They just don't get it. Uh, The wise men do get it. Sorry, the the chief priests and the, the scribes don't get it. This is the thing. There's one other thing that happens here that is fascinating, that what Herod does instead is he goes out to protect. He has the babies killed. He sends the, the, the wise men to have them find it so that he can go and kill Jesus himself. This is what he's after. He wants to defend and protect his kingdom. And there's a great contrast here, and sometimes I find my life in this very moment that sometimes when Christ comes into my life, I hold him at arms. I want to defend my kingdom. I want to defend my world. I want things to go the way I want them to go. But notice what the wise men do. If you continue on in this, 
When uh, the wise men find the house, they go inside, verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. They do just the opposite. Instead of trying to protect what was theirs, they open up their treasures. They give of everything they have. They already have. It takes approximately four months to travel via camel caravan from Babylon to Jerusalem. So for four months there and four months back, they take an eight-month trip just to simply deliver some of their riches over to a baby. Here's this little baby. Hey, baby, you want some gold? How about some frankincense? Here's a match. You can light it and burn it. Here's some myrrh, some oil. Spill it all over the manger. These are not good gifts to give to a baby. These are not wise men. They seem foolish, right? The, The reality is, is there's a connection here of them giving their riches, of them giving their time. And imagine the discussion they had with their wives. All right, we're going to leave now. I'm going to take everything we own, and we're going to go east and give this to this baby. I'll be gone about eight months. Husbands, try that. See how well that goes. It's crazy what they did. They made a huge commitment because they saw value far beyond. This is not simply acknowledgement of some prince born in another place. They see something wonderful and miraculous happening here, and they open up their treasures for this case. But why is gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Once again, tradition typically stops and says, gold is that, that uh, it's, the, the, you know, it's the, the mineral of kings, it's the metal of kings. So gold represented the kingship of Christ. And frankincense was the incense that was burned in the temple. And so that's the fragrant aroma for the priests of the, of the temple. And myrrh was to be a picture of Jesus' death and the embalming for Jesus. And you think about that, and it's like, so you give a baby something, go, oh, baby, by the way, you're going to die pretty soon, and you're going to need this for embalming. You're like, this is, that's, that's brutal. Now, it's not that it's not true. We don't know that. But I'm going to take you on a, on a set of passages that point out a different picture because Scripture talks about gold, frankincense, and myrrh in multiple stories, more than we're going to even have time to cover. But we're going to begin to go down this just so we get a slightly different picture of this because it's very possible that what happens with the wise men when they bring the gold, frankincense, and myrrh from Babylon, that you might actually know where it came from. This is fun. We were in Daniel earlier. If you go back to Daniel, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, this is when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are taken captive and they're taking, taken to Babylon. This is verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So to put this in perspective, here's the temple, and in it are the vessels of God. The Babylonians come over, they lay siege, they take over, and one of the things they do is they go into the tabernacle, they see all this gold stuff, and they confiscate it, and they take it back to Babylon with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and it's over there in Babylon. So this whole thing about the vessels, the vessels are all gold-plated, and, when you, and some of them are solid gold. In fact, let's turn there really quick to Exodus 30, for there's a description in Exodus 30 of the vessels that are in the tabernacle. 
And this is, this is just fascinating. In verse 30, or chapter 30, verse 1, you shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. And it shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with pure gold. Its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. And it goes on to just simply talk about all the gold that's in that and the other vessels. So we have gold as part of the vessels. And then as it goes on in verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels. And then it describes the spices and there's myrrh right there in this, the anointing oil. And then in verse 34, the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stockte and anka and galbanum and sweet spices with pure frankincense of each shall there be an equal part and make an incense blended as by the perfumer seasoned with salt, pure and holy. In the temple, in the tabernacle, we have gold, frankincense and myrrh. And these are the vessels that were taken from the house of God. And they were used to purify the, the, both the, the vessels in the temple, but when the sacrifices would come, gold, frankincense, and myrrh are directly tied here as part of the forgiveness of sins. And at this moment in time, we have wise men from the east coming back with gold, frankincense, and myrrh to Jesus, who now is the new covenant those vessels were the old covenant that you would have to sacrifice a lamb or, or a dove to be able to have your sins forgiven. And now the new covenant is on earth. And what happens? The vessels of the temple are now returned to their rightful owner. Do we know that? And the famous words of Barrett, you don't know that. No, we don't. We can't say with certainty that that's what this is, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the type and the symbolism of what's happening here is very clear. That these wise men stop and it's as if they're bringing it back and they're saying, you know, these are rightfully yours. These don't belong to us. These belong to the one anointed one, the prince. And that's very likely what happens in this mix the, the concept of this is that it starts to point towards Christ. In verse 29 of, of Exodus 30, it says, You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. That the sacredness of those objects and the fact that that would come to Jesus and what we do know is that's exactly true of Jesus. That when you come into that relationship with Jesus, you become holy, you become clean, you become pure. You're able to come before the presence of the living God because of who Jesus is and because of him becoming that sacrifice. One last passage in that light is just simply out of Hebrews. We went through Hebrews earlier this year. And as you look at it in Hebrews 9, it says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand of gold and the table and the bread of the presence, and it's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered in all sides with gold and a golden urn, and it goes on to describe the vessels. That that's the first covenant. And then just a few verses later, in verse, um, verse 23, it says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, those vessels, to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 
For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That Christ himself is the new covenant, it's the new gift that comes and makes it possible for all of us to have a relationship with the living God. Now here's the point. We can take a look at the Magi, the wise men. We can take a look at the stars. We can take a look at gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we can look at it all and, and get lost in those moments. But the reality is, if you don't catch anything, what you want to catch is this. All of them are pointing to Christ. That every part of this, from the wise men coming from the east, they come to see Christ and they show up right at his doorstep. Even the stars are pointing to Christ. They lead right to his doorstep. That what happens with the, the, the shepherds, the angels, the prophets, everything is pointing to Christ. This is not a talk about stars and spices and gold. This is a talk about the Son of God who is a gift to all of us, who's been given to us to stop and say all the stress, all the transgressions, all the things that are muddying up your life, I am giving you a gift that will sanctify all of that in my Son. And that Son is given to us on this day. And it's fascinating, the, the, the whole thing of the universe that comes together to do that. The, the bottom line question is, is Christmas, you come to that moment where you want to give something back. And I remember a Christmas when, uh, when I was young, my parents, I didn't have any money. You know, you, there's child labor laws, and so you don't have any cash of your own. And so my parents would give us, and this was a long time ago, so they would give it like $3 per person. And so like I would buy my brother a gift and I had $3 to spend. I would buy my sister a gift, I had $3 to spend. I would buy my dad a gift and my mom a gift. And literally my dad is the one handing me the money. Here's the money, go buy something for me with $3. And it felt a little bit hard, you know, like, well, this isn't really from me. But I remember one particular time that there was a piggy bank that I saw and it was... It was about $1.99. And all I remember is my dad going, oh, your mom's going to love that. And if I can describe it, it's, it's this plaster piggy bank, and it's a pig. Um, that's why they call them piggy banks. But it's this blue plaster pig with flowers on it, because it was about the 70s. And so this blue flowered pig is there, and it's for about $1.99. My dad says, oh, she's going to love that. Well, now I know, being a dad, that my dad's like, are we done yet? This kid can't make a decision. That one, she's going to love that pig. You'll, she'll, I bought the pig. And I gave it to my mom. And you know what my mom did? Oh, I love this pig. This is so great. You are so sweet. And she went on and on about the pig. Now, I didn't realize till years later that I was going through my mom's stuff and she had all these pigs that I gave her every year after that, <laughs> thinking that she liked, and that's a true story. I gave her a ton of pigs because I thought that's what she likes. <laughs> so here's the God of the universe who gives his sacrifice to us. And the question comes up, what do you give to the God who already has everything? Did you go buy him a pig? What do you give to God? What do you give? Well, I love it. There's a passage in Psalms 50 that literally talks, God talks about this. And he's talking about the fact that all the offerings and everything that everybody does, he's like, I don't need this stuff. 
And instead, he comes in and he says, gather to me, this is verse 5 of Psalm 50, gather to me my faithful, faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So the ones that would sacrifice animals and everything else. And he says, here are my people. Um, in verse 10, he says, I, or 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds or piggy banks from your thrift stores. Verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the fields is mine. I already own it, he says. All of these things are mine. What are you going to give me? And I love what he says in verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. That when God looks at it all, he says, what I want most from you is just simply thanks. Thanksgiving of what I've done for you. Just acknowledge that. Realize who I am and what's at stake here in this grand theater of the universe and everything else that's happening. God says, be aware. Recognize the value that's before you and open up your treasures. The opening of the treasures are just simply those things you hang on to. But what I love on this is this one line here where he says, and call upon me in the day of trouble. That's his gift or your gift to him. That when you're in that moment where things are going well and you're seeing trouble in your life or trouble in a friend's life or family member's life and things aren't going well, one of the best gifts that you give to him is you simply come to Jesus himself. You cry out to him and you come to him in your day of trouble. And the reason why is because at that moment you're recognizing the true value of who God is and what he gave you. And what he, he's coming to be a part of that in this story. This is the gift that he asks from us. Just that. Now there's a, Spurgeon has a great quote on this. That as we've talked about, the wise men are pointing to God. And that um, the stars point to God. The prophets point to God. The angels point to God. The shepherds come in and point to God. Everything is pointing towards Christ. Everything is pointing towards Christ. And it would be a good thing that we did too. So Spurgeon comes along and he says, and I'm, I'll make sure I don't mess it up, but he simply says, the star in the east led men to Christ because it went that way itself. I love that. The reason why the star led men to Christ was because it went to Christ. And we have this story where Herod does not, the chief priests do not. The question is, will we? That Psalms 50, come to me in your day of trouble. Will you move towards Christ? I love this story that just happens with the 50,000 days of Christmas that we heard at the beginning of the service. That this whole thing begins to point towards Christ. In fact, in Matthew 5, um, that when Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he gives this very, very illustration and he uses light there as well. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And that story happened with this family in apartments in Fullerton just a few days ago. Because that light shines in you and when that light wins lived out, that if you let your light so shine, that when you do your good works, others will see them and they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
So you donated, you gave, you put money in the, in the basket to, to give to God, to offer to him. That money's been used to bless a family going through a tremendously hard time. Their life is incredibly tough, and in the middle of it, they lose their job, and it's only getting worse. And it's a time when they tell their kids that this isn't going to be a good Christmas. You're not going to have any gifts that year. And then a light begins to flicker. And that light flickers because those who are following Jesus move towards him, and others can follow a similar star and see that same thing. This is our life. This is what we're called to. We have been given the light from Jesus himself. And if we simply move towards him, there's a world out there that desperately needs to know the value of a God who loves him so much that he sends his son to be the gift for all time for all of us. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm so grateful for the gift of your son. I'm grateful that we have a season that we celebrate that. And Lord, that the season itself points to you. That even as we sing Christmas songs, to have those songs be about you. Lord, may we find that this season be one where each of us live our lives in such a way where we open up our treasures, draw near to you, and by that, others discover you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.